0: President Biden begins his visit to Europe today, meeting with King Charles to discuss the war in Ukraine as well as climate change. It's Monday, July 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the record-breaking heat wave in the Southwest. It's hitting farm workers hard during this peak picking season.
1: So many workers who are disproportionately affected by heat are low-wage workers who have jobs outside.
0: Also this hour, we hear from college counselors about how the Supreme Court decision effectively banning affirmative action affects their work. And conservative lawmakers are punishing some manufacturers who are taking climate change into consideration.
2: We are on the leading edge of pushing our utility providers to reduce or eliminate coal based fossil fuel power plants.
0: Forecast says rain today, temperatures in the 70s. It's 7.01.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is in London meeting British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Later, he'll visit King Charles to discuss climate change. But NPR's Osma Holland reports Biden is looking forward to this week's annual NATO summit
4: the annual nato summit gets underway in lithuania on tuesday one big test for unity is around this issue of expansion ukraine has been eager to get an invitation but biden has said ukraine is not ready to join nato the other more immediate challenge is sweden that country applied to join nato more than a year ago but turkey has been reluctant to allow sweden in Experts say Turkey sees this as a moment of leverage, specifically to obtain F-16 fighter jets from the United States. On the flight over to Europe, Biden spoke with Turkey's president about Sweden's membership and the F-16 issue. And the two men are planning to meet again in person on the sidelines of NATO. Biden has said he's optimistic Sweden will join the alliance.
3: Asma Khalid, NPR News. Meanwhile, Turkey's president has added another wrinkle. He says the European Union should allow Turkey to join the EU before Sweden joins NATO. Russia's military struck a town in southeastern Ukraine where humanitarian aid was being distributed. At least four civilians have been killed and more than a dozen others injured. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the town is just a few miles behind the front lines of the fighting.
5: Ukrainian officials say the Russian attack occurred while residents were receiving food and other necessities at a school in the town of Orihiv. Many of the dead and wounded were trapped in the rubble. While Ukraine controls the town, the front line is just a few miles south, an area where Ukrainian forces are pressing an offensive against Russian troops. Ukraine said the wider area came under heavy Russian shelling and airstrikes over the weekend. The Ukrainian offensive, which began a month ago, has so far made limited progress, with both sides suffering heavy casualties. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Eve.
3: new england is getting pounded by heavy rain this morning parts of vermont and massachusetts are under flash flood warnings the weather system poured heavy rain on eastern new york state last night and one woman drowned in the southern u.s unusually hot weather will return today temperatures of 100 degrees or more are forecasted meteorologist brian jackson says many people are affected by the national weather service's heat cautions
6: under uh... Heat advisories or excessive heat warnings is about 28 million people, um, you know, focused on the southwest U.S., back through Texas, and a few other places such as Florida and eastern Washington.
3: The central plains are affected by the heat, too. The National Weather Service says heat indices there could rise above 110 degrees today. You're listening to NPR News. A federal jury will resume hearing testimony today against the gunman convicted of killing 11 Jewish worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. They're weighing whether to recommend the death penalty. Part of a major river in Georgia remains closed to recreation. It's been more than a week since a wastewater treatment plant north of Atlanta had a breakdown in its treatment process. From member station wabe molly samuel
7: reports the chattahoochee river is popular for fishing kayaking and tubing but 15 miles of the river in metro atlanta have been closed because of health concerns at the end of june something caused the biological processes in a sewage treatment plant in fulton county to stop working correctly the plant has since released tens of millions of gallons of partially treated wastewater into the chattahoochee Officials say no drinking water is in danger, and environmentalists say the levels of E. coli are now going down as the county gets the facility back on track. Fulton County officials say it could take weeks to figure out what exactly threw off the balance of good and bad microbes in the plant. For NPR News, I'm Molly Samuel in Atlanta.
3: Hundreds of people filled streets yesterday in Bosnia-Herzegovina's capital, Sarajevo. They were paying respects to the remains of 30 people carried by in coffins. They were victims of the Srebrenica massacre of the mid-1990s in the Bosnian War. During the massacre, some 8,000 Bosnian Serb men and boys were taken from their families and murdered. The newly discovered victims will be buried tomorrow, the anniversary of the start of the killings in
0: 1995. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. State officials say they're optimistic about construction progress on the Sumner Tunnel so far. The tunnel that connects East Boston and Logan Airport to downtown was shut down last Wednesday. It will remain closed through the end of August. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says crews are using this time to make repairs to the aging tunnel
8: progress is going really well right now with our contractor. They have now, as of today, removed 100 percent of the suspended ceilings, and we're shifting into the next stage of work, which will be uh, chipping out concrete and preparing for the precast arch construction. That phase will go on for the remainder of the summer.
0: Right now, delays on Route 1A to get into the Ted Williams Tunnel begin at Curtis Street. To help drivers get around the closure, the blue line of the T is free. Fares are also discounted on the new Port rockport commuter rail line we have advice about how to deal with the closure on the front page of wbur.org local wildlife officials say a fear of sharks should not be keeping you away from the beach this summer Lindsay french is with the cape cod national seashore she says there's always a risk of encountering sharks at the seashore but there are steps you can take to reduce the risk of an attack
9: Never swim near seals, stay visible to the lifeguards, avoid
10: murky or low visible water, avoid isolation, limit splashing, and always stay close to shore where rushers can reach you and always, always listen to the lifeguards and pay attention to signage and flag warnings that we have at the beaches.
0: French says it is rare for sharks to attack people in the past decade. There have been three shark attacks at the national seashore. One of those was fatal. The northern lights may be visible. In parts of Massachusetts this week, researchers say the best days to catch a glimpse are Wednesday and Thursday. The ideal time to see the lights is between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. We will be able to see them because of what's called a geomagnetic storm. The northern lights may be visible this week as far south as Maryland. The time is 8 minutes past 7.
11: WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
0: In sports, Red Sox beat the Oakland A's 4-3 to at Fenway Park yesterday to end the first half of the season. The Sox are off until Friday for the All-Star break. In our forecast, clouds, rain, thunderstorms today. A flood watch posted for parts of central and western Massachusetts. It'll be in the 70s today. Tonight, cloudy, more rain possible, lows in the 60s. Tomorrow, showers in the morning, partly sunny in the afternoon. Highs in the 80s and Wednesday should be sunny and warm with temperatures near 90 degrees. It is 68 degrees in Boston.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California.
13: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In a few minutes, farm workers are laboring in record heat to make sure we have food, but federal laws to protect them have been slow in coming. But first, as this year's NATO summit gets underway in Lithuania, Turkey is still blocking Sweden's bid for membership in the alliance. Terry Schultz has this report from Brussels.
9: The tone of NATO's Vilnius summit will be determined by one man, and it's not the one running the alliance.
14: So it comes to his decision and his alone.
9: Retired Turkish ambassador Selim Kunarop says no one can predict whether Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will let Sweden become a NATO member at the summit. But Kunarop does detect that Erdogan has slightly softened his anti-Swedish rhetoric since winning re-election in May.
15: He's not been saying things like, you know, they will join over my dead body or anything like that. It's been sort of open to discussion. And so anything might happen.
9: 29 of the 31 NATO governments, as well as Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, say it should already have happened. Stockholm has toughened its stance against the PKK, a Kurdish militant group designated as a terrorist organization but still allowed to hold public demonstrations. Swedish police have tried to block incidents of Koran burning. And restrictions have been lifted on arms sales to Turkey. The Swedish government says it cannot go further, and Paul Levin, head of Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, says the Swedish public agrees. It would be
16: politically very difficult for any government to make restrictions on freedom of speech at the sort of behest of Erdogan, who is running a country that right now does not rank well when it comes to freedom of speech.
9: But Erdogan is also seeking sweeteners from outside Sweden. Sales of U.S. F-16 fighter jets currently blocked by Congress. Presidents Biden and Erdogan discussed both Swedish membership and F-16s in a phone call Sunday, after which Erdogan denied the two subjects are connected. Swedish defense policy analyst Elizabeth Bra scoffs at claims there's no quid pro quo.
3: Everybody knows that's not the case. The Biden administration is willing to offer Turkey F-16s in exchange for Sweden's accession.
9: A face-to-face meeting between Biden and Erdogan has just been put on the summit agenda to apply maximum pressure, but Bra remains skeptical on her country's behalf.
3: A promise from Erdogan when it comes to Swedish membership will only be real when Sweden is in NATO.
9: For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels.
12: All right, let's go to Vilnius, Lithuania, scene of that NATO summit. That's where we find former Pentagon official Christopher Skoluba. He heads the Transatlantic Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Christopher, President Biden told CNN it's premature to let Ukraine join the NATO alliance right now, uh, even though some alliance members are allied with Ukraine. Uh, What's the logic there?
17: Yeah, to be honest with you, A, the logic is a little bit puzzling, right? Because NATO famously said in 2008 at its Bucharest Summit in Romania that Ukraine would one day be a member of NATO. Uh, Of course, right now the stakes are very high. Ukraine is suffering from this Russian invasion. And all they really want from NATO is an understanding of what the pathway for membership looks like. So if you talk to people um, in the administration or some of the allies, what they're hearing from um, the United States is the concerns about further escalation of the war, understanding that the issue of NATO is is, is very much uh, a difficult one for Putin, not wanting to complicate uh, a more complicated situation. And as Biden said over the weekend, uh, thinks that Ukraine still has some work to do. So that's the basic thinking mm. that you're hearing from the White House. If Russia had not
12: invaded Ukraine, Christopher, how close would Ukraine be to being a NATO member?
17: It's a a great question and and I think actually less close than than, than it is now because the issue of NATO membership wasn't really on the table. As we said, the promise was made in 2008 and for the better part of 15 years, NATO hasn't done much to define the the requirements for membership. Now, Ukraine and NATO are close partners. Obviously, NATO allies and the the alliance itself are supporting Ukraine in its war against Russia. But it's really, I think, the circumstances of the war that has causing ukraine to say hey we really want to be in as soon as possible uh, our future security uh, is could only be, be protected by by nato
12: all right now to sweden president biden wants sweden in nato turkey is uh, objecting any sense that turkey may drop that objection
17: It's really hard to know, and I think as the last report said, this is all in the hands of one person, which is President Erdogan. If you recall last year at the Madrid summit, uh, the issue of inviting Finland and Sweden to NATO were on the table. Uh, Turkey was objecting. They had some dramatic meetings uh, in the margins of Madrid, and then he ultimately agreed. So it's possible that this meeting with President Biden or a meeting with the Swedish prime minister here in Vilnius could signal a willingness to move ahead uh, on the ratification, uh, but as one of your last guests said, uh, until this is done, it's not going to be done. So even if he says today that he'd be willing to do it until the parliamentary ratification is done, we can't count on it being done.
12: If uh, this summit ends without Sweden becoming a member, is it a success or not a success?
17: I think it's a setback, right? I think I want to see the, the the ultimate outcomes. Uh, at the end of the summit, NATO will issue a communique that will talk about dozens and dozens of issues. Uh, and most of them I think there'll be agreement on. But I think if Sweden isn't in or there's not a clear signal when Sweden will be in, it will be a setback. And similarly, I think this issue of Ukraine's NATO membership can be contentious. And if we don't come out of the summit with a good understanding of what that looks like, again, it would feel like a setback.
12: And NATO leaders have warned that a Ukraine scenario could be repeated in Taiwan. So let's move to China. What could NATO do to confront the
17: growing China challenge? I think what NATO is trying to do with respect to China is understand how Chinese investment in Europe uh, is leveraging national security concerns, right? So if China is investing in a port, could they somehow block you know, uh, military movement through that port in a crisis. There's also interest in NATO thinking about how Sweden and Russia are working together. Obviously, Russia's uh, 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 invasion of Ukraine is being supported, at least economically and politically, by China. So trying to better understand and better connect the, the United States' transatlantic and trans-Pacific allies is a big part of what we're trying to do this week in Vilnius.
12: Christopher Skaluba of the Atlantic Council. Christopher, thanks.
17: Thanks so much.
13: Texas and other southern states are experiencing a heat dome with record temperatures. This is leading to brutal conditions for people who work outside, including farm workers. But there are few laws to protect them. President Biden campaigned on rules to protect workers from extreme heat. But as NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports, some states are not waiting for the White House and Congress.
18: Aguas? Gatorade? Volunteers from the United Farm Workers walk through rows of grapes and hops. They hand out Gatorades and water on a warm June day. It's the morning and not quite the peak of summer, but spend enough time outside and you start to feel the sun. That's Lorena Avalos, who until last summer was picking blueberries. Now she's working for the UFW under a new partnership with the Agriculture Department to help the farm worker community. Right now, she's walking them through a new rule. They must have more breaks once temperatures reach 90 and 100 degrees. Also, shade and water. Washington state is one of five states that have created permanent heat rules. Two years ago, a heat dome like the one in the south this year had descended upon Washington. She said the heat is unbearable, because sometimes the temperature is at 85 outside. But when the field is covered, it feels like 90 or 92. Lorena and her then 16-year-old son were working in the blueberry fields, under a tarp used to protect blueberries from birds. She remembers how people suffered from the heat. Me dijo que le mucho la Another farm worker told her that her head hurt, and she told her that she has to step outside to get water and shade. They didn't even have shade. She began throwing up, and they had to call an ambulance. That's when Lorena decided her son wouldn't come back to the fields. And Washington then came up with an emergency rule and now a permanent rule, in line with the rules placed in Colorado, Oregon, California, and Minnesota. ¿Me okay. Still, even with a rule, she says it's groups like hers that need to make sure people know their rights and call if they're not getting shade, water, and Berry farmers across the Yakima Valley say they often don't have their workers out during peak temperatures anyway, Kevin Knight, a farmer in the Natchez area, says sometimes the issue is the workers don't want to take breaks because they're paid piece rate. This means they're paid for how much they pick and any break cuts into their bottom line.
19: They're picking cherries. They don't want to take time out because it costs them money. So many cherry breaks irritate them.
18: And truth is, the heat impacts more than just the workers.
19: It's not good for the fruit. It's not good for the people. Pretty much it's not good for anything. We can't spray when it's hot. It burns stuff. There isn't much you can do when it's hot.
18: But continued climate change means workers and farmers can expect more heat. Biden came into office wanting to create a heat rule. After the Northwest Heat Dome of 2021, the Labor Department got started. Doug Parker is the head of the Federal Agency for Workplace Safety and Health. He says a rule to protect both indoor and outdoor workers from heat is still a top priority.
1: Heat is particularly important because of the broad range of workers that it affects and because of the issues of equity that are involved so many workers who are disproportionately affected by heat are low wage workers who have jobs outside they're often immigrant workers workers of color
18: Parker says even if there is no heat specific rule the government expects employers to still follow general regulations for making sure workplaces are safe
1: where there's a combination of hot weather and strenuous work you know these are these are this is clearly occupational hazard and we expect employers to to make adjustments to their work processes.
18: But the rulemaking process is long and two years in, and there's plenty to go before workers get these protections. And adding to the mix, the 2024 presidential election. Any change in administration, Parker said, would likely impact the process since this was a Biden administration priority. This leaves it back in states' hands. And not all states are on the same page. Just last month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a law that removed water breaks for construction workers. Until there is a federal standard, states will continue to be a patchwork as temperatures continue to rise. Ximena Bustillo, NPR News, Yakima, Washington.
13: This is
0: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, a look at how some manufacturing companies are responding to attempts to penalize them for considering climate change as they plan for the future. It's 20 minutes past seven.
20: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at TheMusicEmporium.com. Many Americans with ADHD are
10: scrambling for their prescription medication due to a months long shortage.
21: Adderall people,
18: ADHD people, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because I just drove all over my town. Not a single person had my medication.
10: What's behind the demand for ADHD drugs? And how are people coping who can't get their medications? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: In our forecast, rain and thunderstorms. Today, a flood watch posted for parts of central and western Massachusetts. Temperatures around 70 degrees today. Tonight, more rain with lows in the 60s. Tomorrow, showers in the morning, partly sunny in the afternoon, and temperatures in the 80s. It is 68 degrees in Boston.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool, designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News, I'm Amy Martinez.
22: And I'm Michelle Martin,
13: good morning. Award-winning author and illustrator John Clausen is best known for children's books like I Want My Hat Back and This Is Not My Hat. There are no hats to be found in his latest book, which is also probably his longest. The Skull is Clausen's adaptation of a traditional folk tale, and it features the lush illustrations and wry humor his fans will recognize. NPR's Julie Deppenbrock spoke to the author about The Skull
20: and also about why so many kids like scary stories. Ever since he was a child, John Clausen has been drawn to a certain kind of reading material.
23: I was a real scaredy cat about most things, especially film and TV and stuff. I would turn it off pretty quick if it looked like it was about to (laughs) scare me. But books I always really felt brave with, especially books that I knew were meant for me. I think that that was a big deal. And it's something I still sort of try for is that like aesthetically, you want to make sure that the kid knows that they're in territory that was aimed at them, right? And then you can go a lot of places as long as the type is the right size and the trim is the right size of the book and everything. They feel like Okay, I'm allowed to read this. And I always got a real thrill out of books that felt like that, but you were still reading kind of darker, scary stuff.
20: The Skull is definitely darker than Clausen's past work.
23: This new book is sort of the first time I've, I think I've done like a let's tell a scary story kind of feeling one. The other ones are edgy, but I think it kind of sneaks up on you a little bit.
20: But Clausen wants to be clear. This book is not too scary for kids. And there's comedy in it. That's a big part of building trust with his audience of young readers. Claussen says if you can tell a pretty good joke...
23: Hopefully they trust you as a storyteller to kind of take care of them through a scarier part. Whereas if you haven't been doing anything with them for 10 pages and all of a sudden you scare them, they're kind of wondering who you are.
20: Claussen first discovered a version of the skull at a library in Alaska.
23: And I like to go to folktale sections of like libraries or bookstores when you're in a different town, just because they usually have some random local stuff that you wouldn't find anywhere else.
20: The story stuck with him. The premise was simple. A little girl named Otilla runs away from home.
23: And she finds a house in the woods and there's a an animate skull living in there. And I thought that's such a great start for a story.
20: Clausen was not a fan of how the original folktale ended, with the spell broken and the skull transformed into a beautiful lady in white. So his retelling is a bit different. No spoilers, but here's an excerpt from the story.
23: When it was dark, Otilla made some tea and a fire in the fireplace room. Would you give me some tea, please, said the skull. Otilla took a teacup and poured the tea through his mouth and onto the chair. Ah, nice and warm, said the skull. Thank you.
20: The sweetest and strangest part of this story is the friendship that forms between Attila and the skull. They take care of each other.
23: Right away, they seem gentle with each other, and I really wanted to write that without sort of writing it explicitly, to just be like, these guys really like each other.
20: Klaassen leaves out certain details from the story. Why Attila runs away is never explained. He wants to give kids the space to engage, to think, to feel some way about all of it.
23: A lot of my favorite stories, they aren't necessarily about a moral or a lesson, they're just sort of like I feel better now in a very general way. And that was sort of the idea here. It was like, do you feel better? Like, I think I felt better.
20: I used to teach first grade, so Claussen's work was familiar to me. I've seen the smiles kids get on their faces after reading his books and looking at the pictures, which Claussen says are just as important to understanding the story. Julie Deppenbrock, NPR News.
12: Taylor Swift released Speak Now, Taylor's version on Friday. She was just 19 when the original version of that album came out in
13: 2010. This new version features re-recordings of every song plus a few bonus tracks.
12: Swift has been going back and re-recording many of her earliest albums recently. Like many artists, Swift does not own the
13: master tapes to those old recordings, so this is her way to take back control over her early music. Justin Stoney is a vocal coach in New York and he's been comparing the sound of 19-year-old Taylor with 33-year-old Taylor. She has improved in her ability
16: to go from a sort of lighter or breathier kind of sound to a solid sound with great efficiency. If anybody goes from say a breathy sound to a clean sound, they might go from like a
19: whoa
16: breathy to a whoa clean. And Taylor has gotten better at her ability to go from breathy to clean, not just in her middle range but all the way up in her high range. She's not
10: a not what you think.
16: If you listen to the woes, just those woes towards the end of Better Than Revenge, you hear she had a belty quality 13 years ago, but her ability to get that belty, solid strong quality these days is easier, it's stronger, it's more efficient, and it's exciting to hear.
12: And if you're a singer trying to get that same tone, Stoney advises stretching your vocal cords. That might be sounds that sound
16: like or and we could practice an exercise that went or even a sort of lip trill.
13: And you'll also need strength.
16: (laughs) The, hey, how are you doing? Chest voice strength. And then we need the ability to
13: blend that. Dernie says ideally five to six days a week of lip and tongue trilling can help you stretch out those vocal muscles. And you'll
12: be belting out those whoa in no time. I gotta practice. Uh, maybe not just like Tay-Tay, but close enough. The
10: story starts when it was hot and it was summer. And-
24: Faster than you could say, sabotage. I never saw it coming when I suspected it. I underestimated just who I was dealing with.
0: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are just ahead. And at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we hear from some college counselors about how the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action affects their work. You can tap to follow the news every day on the WBUR app. One tap to listen live anywhere. Another tap to pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in your app store today. It's
25: 7.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is in London ahead of this week's NATO summit. He's been holding talks with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak today. Later, Biden is scheduled to meet with King Charles at Windsor Castle. NPR's Osmak Khalid in London says the war in Ukraine and NATO expansion are expected to dominate the summit in Vilnius.
4: Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has called on Biden to invite Ukraine into NATO now, but Biden has resisted that push. Uh, the president spoke with CNN's Fareed Zakaria before he left for this trip to Europe, and Biden flatly said Ukraine is not ready for NATO membership.
25: Finland was accepted in NATO in April. Sweden's application is still pending. The two countries sought membership in the alliance after Russia invaded Ukraine. Much of New England is under flood watches and warnings this morning as heavy rains move across the region. The National Weather Service says areas such as Keene and Concord in New Hampshire could receive one to two inches of rain before the day's over. In New York State, Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse says one woman drowned there yesterday when she tried to escape the flooding.
17: I could definitely see where she was trying to get out to to safety but uh, did not make it, got swept away.
25: Triple-digit heat will be the issue this week in the southwest, including much of South Texas. This is NPR News. Authorities in Pennsylvania are still looking for a suspect in a homicide investigation who escaped from a jail in Warren over the weekend. They say 34-year-old Michael Burham tied bedsheets together to help make his escape through a window. That jail is about 10 miles south of the New York State line. The results of Guatemala's presidential election are still not known, two weeks after voting concluded. As Maria Martin reports, hundreds of people took to the streets yesterday to demand the government respect the will of the voters amid legal challenges.
26: Protesters carried blue and white Guatemalan flags and shouted, we want an authentic democracy and no to corruption and the mafia-controlled courts. Students, civic and indigenous groups marched as the official results of the June 25th election still hang in legal limbo. On Friday, the Supreme Court ordered electoral authorities to hold off announcing the results of an already completed court-ordered ballot review for 10 days. On Sunday, the anti-corruption party Semilla, whose standard bearer Bernardo Arevalo won a surprising second place to qualify for the August runoff, filed a legal challenge to the court's latest decision. For NPR News, I'm Maria Martin.
25: Dow futures are up 23 points this morning. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Seventy beaches across Massachusetts are closed because of high levels of bacteria in the water. The Department of Public Health says it closes beaches if there are high levels of E. coli for two days in a row. High bacteria levels have also been measured in some of the state's freshwater swimming areas. Officials say swimming in water with high bacteria could make you sick. The list of closed beaches includes Wollaston Beach in Quincy, Lynn Beach in Lynn, and Lake Quinsigamond in Worcester. The former judge, well known for his role as the whistleblower on the Big Dig, has died. Edward M. Ginsburg was appointed by state officials in 2005 to lead an investigation into the failures of the big dig. His work revealed that contractors and state employees worked together to try to cover up problems with the project. Ginsburg died last month at the age of 90. Parking meters are now free in the city of Salem for anyone with a veteran license plate. Salem's veterans agent says the change was made last week after a Purple Heart recipient got two parking tickets in a short period of time. The free parking includes any city-owned parking lot in Salem. The time is 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital. Thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org/answers. In sports, Red Sox ended the first half of the season with a win yesterday. They beat the Oakland A's four to three. The Sox are off until Friday for the All-Star break. In last night's Major League Baseball draft, the Sox took catcher Kyle Teal with their first-round pick. Teal's a 21-year-old who. Played Played last spring with the University of Virginia. Weather forecast says wet weather today, rain, thunderstorms, heavy rain at times. There is a flood watch posted for parts of central and western Massachusetts today. Temperatures will be in the 70s. More rain likely tonight with lows in the 60s and tomorrow showers in the morning, partly sunny in the afternoon though. Highs in the 80s. It's 68 degrees in Boston.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And Martinez in Culver City, California. Conservative
12: lawmakers in several states are punishing companies that consider the impact of climate change in their investment decisions. But that's not stopping manufacturers from trying to prepare for a hotter world. NPR's Michael Copley went to see how one steelmaker is responding to
19: the risks and opportunities from global warming. A steel company called Nucor has a factory off a of wooded two-lane road about an hour north of Charleston, South Carolina. This is where it's turning tons of scrap metal into steel sheets and I-beams. Inside the plant, it's hot and loud. Robert Yab hands me a hard hat and says to be careful that nothing falls on me.
2: Directly above you is 160 tons of liquid steel.
19: Steel is in cars and buildings and bridges, and making it is a big source of the pollution that's making the planet hotter. Automakers and other steel customers have started asking for a product that generates less climate pollution. So, Nucor is looking at its options.
2: I think the goal is that if you recognize the world needs steel, then the steel that you use and how it's produced really does matter. Greg
19: Murphy is an executive vice president at Nucor. He says making steel with fewer emissions is also a way for the
2: company to grow its business. Because we have something that differentiates us from our competition.
19: But Republican politicians in South Carolina and nationwide are suspicious of corporate efforts to deal with climate change. They say investors who reward initiatives like Nucor's are focused on advancing liberal policies, not making money. But a lot of industrial companies like Nucor see climate change as an existential issue. That's according to Tonsi Whelan, who runs the Center for Sustainable Business at New York University.
9: There's a whole series of operational efficiencies, innovation and growth opportunities, risk mitigation opportunities, in addition to regulation.
19: Companies are trying to minimize threats from things like drought, while also boosting profits. South Carolina's Republican Treasurer, Curtis Loftus, says he's proud of companies in the state that are making greener products. But he says Americans' economic freedom is threatened by investors that consider environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, factors. A new course plant in South Carolina, the place thunders as it melts scrap metal into steel. Workers in the control room operate furnaces that look like giant cauldrons. The lid of one opens up, a bucket swings over, and dumps 130 tons of scrap inside. Then an electrode drops in, and the fireworks start. We're generating a lightning bolt that's generating through the entire mass of metal and liquefying as quickly as possible. Generating a lightning bolt? Yes, we are generating a lightning bolt, absolutely. The furnace temperature approaches 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and those furnaces use a huge amount of power. The South Carolina plant alone uses about 2 percent of the state's electricity, but Greg Murphy says there's a way right now to start lowering emissions from Nucor's power supply.
2: We are on the leading edge of pushing our utility providers to reduce or eliminate coal-based fossil fuel power plants.
19: Nucor has also signed contracts with renewable energy projects, and it's invested in the company that's trying to build small nuclear power plants. It's also going after the emissions from raw materials. It plans to capture and store emissions from an iron plant deep underground before they're released into the atmosphere. And it's invested in a startup that's trying to make carbon-free iron. Murphy doesn't see a way right now to eliminate all of Nucor's emissions.
2: But we think we can get really, really
19: close. The question is whether customers will pay for green products. One of Nucor's competitors said green steel costs up to 20 percent more to make than conventional steel. Murphy says some customers are willing to pay more.
2: But I think the appetite for a premium really varies widely.
19: That appetite will need to get stronger. The United Nations says the world is running out of time to keep temperatures from rising to levels that could be disastrous. Michael Copley, NPR News.
13: Earlier this year, record snowpack and rains refreshed a long, dry lake in the Central Valley of California. The return of the vast Tulare Lake caused hundreds of millions of dollars in damage to farms and communities in the region. But for one Native American tribe, the return of the lake provides an opportunity to reconnect with the land and their ancestors. From member station KVPR, Sarith Hawk has this report.
10: On a recent afternoon, about two dozen members of the Tachiyokut tribe gather at the shore of Tulare Lake. Water stretches as far as the eye can see.
2: And what you see behind us now is Pa'a Shi
10: has reawakened. Robert Jeff is the vice chairman of the tribe. Pa'a Shi means big water, the Tachiyokut name for the lake. Tribal members play rattles clapsticks, and sing as part of a ceremony to welcome it back. Kenny Barrios is the tribe's cultural liaison. He wrote the song.
6: That song said we need our water.
10: Thank you for bringing our water back. The Tachioka tribe once lived on these shores. The lake provided food, plants to build shelter, and was the center of a trade route for tribes in the region. But today, the 1,200 members of the Tachiokut live a few miles away on a reservation called the Santa Rosa Rancheria. Now the community relies on a resort and casino as their main source of revenue. One paved road leads into the reservation, surrounded by flat, dry land. At the reservation's cultural center… These are baskets that have been repatriated to the tribe. Cultural State. director Sheena Powers was, um, shows off handmade uh, baskets the tribe used to cook and fish here. when they still lived by the lake. They're made out of native plants water. and woven with intricate designs. This design right here, that is the goose design. The geese that used to flock to the lake have special significance. They would come down
24: in the winter, and that was you know the yokut way of looking at prosperity. You know it's going to be a fat winter. You know everybody's going to be doing good based upon how the
10: geese look. By the mid 1800s, the Tachioka tribe had been severely impacted by settlers. They killed many tribe members and introduced diseases that decimated the Tachiyokut. Eventually, they were forced from their land, and the lake ultimately disappeared after water was diverted to clear space for crops and irrigate them. <laughs> Back at the lake, members of the tribe scatter seeds of native river sage. Some wade in knee-deep to replant tule reeds like those that used to grow here. Cultural liaison Kenny Barrios looks out at the water. He believes the spirits of their ancestors have come back to the lake.
5: They're flying around out there. They're flying over it. They're flying through it. They're coming back to it.
10: Returning to this shore also allows people to reconnect to a lost part of themselves, says Vice Chairman Robert Jeff.
2: This lake, this is this is who we are. This is this is where we belong, Is right here. We're lake people. Everything that we lived off of was, was offered to us by this lake.
10: Those who lost homes and crops in this most recent flood are in the thoughts of people at this ceremony, like Pearl Hutchins, who belongs to another band of yokut. And now they don't have a home, so I feel sorry for a lot of people that can't live where they would live before. Forecasters expect the lake will remain for at least another year. While it's here, Tachiokut leaders plan to hold more ceremonies to honor the waters and their connection to it. For NPR News, I'm Sarith Hawk in Kings County.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, ahead of NATO's summit, Ukraine's president makes the case for security guarantees. He also arranged for commanders released by Russia to return to Ukraine against the wishes of Russia. In our weather forecast, rain today, thunderstorms as well. There is a flood watch posted for parts of central and western Massachusetts today. Temperatures should be in the 70s. Tonight, showers continue. Lows will be in the 60s. Tomorrow, some rain in the morning, partly sunny in the afternoon. Highs in the 80s. Looks like sunshine on Wednesday, though. And temperatures near 90 degrees. It's 68 degrees in Boston.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com.
0: In business news, Massachusetts employers say they are still slightly pessimistic about the state of the economy. That's according to the Business Confidence Index by Associated Industries of Massachusetts. It shows overall confidence in June remained about the same as the month prior. Christopher Gearn is the organization's vice president, and he says employers seem to be reacting to contradictory economic signals.
6: On the one hand, the economy is pretty resilient. We saw that in the jobs report on Friday most recently. At the same time, uh, inflation has subsided, certainly, but not nearly enough for the Federal Reserve to stop cranking up interest rates.
0: Guerin says business owners cite the ability to find qualified workers as a major concern. The time is 7.46. Support for NPR comes from this
22: station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at subaru.com/wilderness. And from Uma, a cloud-based phone service for any-size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com/npr. This is NPR.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
13: I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Cedar Rapids Sizzlers are a women's basketball team set to defend their national title this coming weekend in Decorah, Iowa. They are three-time champions in what's called granny basketball for women over 50. But you don't have to be a grandma to play. Greg Eklund reports. All right. At the Iowa
1: Senior Games Tournament, a huddle of six women break after a timeout. Diana Marker is their co-captain and coach. She's 72. She says more older women are taking on granny basketball. Their league's theme, off their rockers.
21: Women are thinking, so what if I'm 50? I can still do this.
1: Granny basketball has played six on six. Unlike the conventional game, there are restrictions to where players can move on the court. It's adapted from the way the girls' high school game was played for decades.
21: We have modified the rules so that people won't get injured playing because you can't afford to go through a year or two of rehab, you know, when you're in your 70s.
1: The uniforms are inspired by those that women wore 100 years ago. That means penny jerseys with a big bow tied in front, not unlike sailors in the Navy, from the waist down, the grannies play in black bloomers and colorful knee-high socks. Player Linda Jennings said at first she thought the uniform was too ridiculous. I just said I'm not wearing those outfits. Historically, women's uniforms covered their entire body. They've preserved this regulation by inventing something called a technical flesh foul. That's when flesh is exposed below the neck. Jennings said eventually she relented.
0: So it took a couple years, I retired when I was 55 and then it was
3: like, ah, what the heck, who cares? I'm old now, it doesn't matter if I wear those goofy outfits.
1: Granny Basketball is a nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2005. Now it has more than 500 players in 10 states. Michelle Clark, who's retired from the healthcare industry is Granny Basketball's executive director.
21: Gosh, we're just getting contacts all the time from new women wanting to join the league. They hear about granny basketball. They want to learn more um, and they want to be a part of it. So we try to connect them with teams in their area.
1: Granny basketball has attracted attention from many places. Women's final four star Caitlin Clark of the Iowa Hawkeyes has been garnering the headlines this year. She says when she learned about this team, she was an instant fan.
0: Oh, my gosh. I might have to check them out. That's tough. That's Mm -hmm. sick. That's awesome.
1: As three-time national champions, one might think the Cedar Rapids Sizzlers could flash a little bling with either a ring, a bracelet, or a necklace. But on the subject of championship jewelry, Diana Marker says...
21: No, I don't think so.
1: The Sizzlers, in their humble manner, took care of business at this most recent tournament. They won it. Now they're on to their biggest challenge, the national championship in Decora. Any team thinking it's got a shot at dethroning them just might be off their rockers. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund.
13: Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, they're calling it a floating border wall. This weekend, Texas deployed buoys into the Rio Grande as a way to deter migrant crossings. To hear the story, listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour on Morning Edition, some advice about how to stay positive amid stress and anxiety that can crop up during family vacations. It's nine minutes before eight. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition, a radio program that is consistent. You hear the same voices at the same
12: time every morning, no matter what is happening in the world. You hear familiar voices. This morning, we bring you news of a huge legal settlement.
27: Bringing often unfamiliar and surprising facts. Unidentified anomalous
21: phenomena. Listen every weekday.
28: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy in Marlborough. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th. NEIacademy.org.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following on WBUR this Monday morning. President Biden meeting with UK leaders in London today to discuss the war in Ukraine and climate change. A ban on gender-affirming care is now in effect in Tennessee after a federal court ruling. And a flood watch posted for Central and Western Massachusetts as heavy rains bring flood conditions across parts of the Northeast. You can stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app.
21: WBOR supporters include Fresh Food Generation Restaurant, providing drop off corporate and community catering of farm to plate Caribbean American fare.
13: FreshFoodGeneration.com It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
12: Anna Mae Martinez, the Supreme Court's decision to effectively strike down affirmative action in higher education is changing where and how students are applying for college. Whitney Goucher is the vice president of programs at Emerge, an organization that helps high-achieving
29: students in low-income areas. We work with students to identify which schools they would be challenged academically at, but also would thrive.
12: She says the ruling left some students in her program feeling deflated and wondering if they should even apply to these highly selective institutions.
29: When you look at the data, one in four students who have the grades and the test scores to get into these institutions are even applying. And this was before the decision. And so what we want to ensure and let our students know is, yes, you should be applying. And if you have the grades and the rigor and the test scores, you can be a competitive applicant
12: how have you explained to your students what the supreme court's ruling on affirmative action is and what it means
29: of course we're still learning ourselves and how colleges will respond to this decision and how we might need to adjust and what that means for our students when we're advising them but one thing that's been really affirming i do think is colleges have been releasing statements And in it, of course, they're saying we're going to comply with the law. Of course, they will. And they're also still committed to admitting a diverse student body. And so what we've explained to our students, we've just affirmed them and we've let them know that regardless of the decision, you still belong here and you have the merits to be a successful student at this campus.
12: If race is no longer a factor but they want to talk about their race in these say like these college essays. What do you say? How do you advise them to approach that?
29: Our advice for now won't shift. We will continue to advise students to reflect and write about a key personal story, experience or moment in their lives that has shaped who they are. And for many of our students, their background or identity is a key factor that has shaped who they are. So many of our students will choose to write about the community that they come from, their family dynamics, or a significant life experience that is centered around their identity. For example, one student shared in her essay about coming from an immigrant family where her mother built their house in her home country. And when they moved to the U.S., their low-income neighborhood didn't have sidewalks. This influenced the student to want to study architecture at Carnegie Mellon, where she's now a sophomore. And so I think that many students have backgrounds and identities that are so salient to who they are, and we want to continue to encourage our students to share their stories in that way.
12: California banned affirmative action a long time ago. Um, Before this ruling, when you had students that wanted to apply to a university in California, did they have to or did you advise them to change or tailor their applications to fit California's laws?
29: That's a great question. I actually can speak to a personal experience because I applied to UCLA at a time where affirmative action was banned. And I had a mentor who helped me navigate the complex process and I'm glad that I didn't let the low number of Black students attending UCLA at the time deter me from applying. I thrived at UCLA, built a strong network there and graduated in four years. I think one thing that we're sharing with our students is share as much context and information as you can that shows who you are as a student, what values you have, what you will contribute to the campus community, and just really put your best foot forward. And I think once students do that, there's this thing we call a ripple effect. So once one student goes, then other students from their community can see that they've thrived and they've excelled, and they're more encouraged to apply.
12: That's Whitney Goucher, Vice President of Programs at Emerge. Whitney, thanks.
29: Thank you so much.
12: After more than five decades, Sir Elton John is hanging up his feather boa, putting away the platform shoes, and saying goodbye to touring.
13: Or that's what he says, anyway. The 76-year-old has announced his retirement from touring at least five times since 1984, but the singer says he's been on the road since he was 16 and he's tired. He described his punishing travel schedule to Fresh Air host Terry Gross back in 2013. And no matter where
1: I am in the world, I always look forward to coming home. Or, you know, I, I, If I do a show in Chicago, I'll fly from Atlanta, where I have a home, and play the show and come back that night and sleep in my own bed. Even if I have two shows in a row in Chicago, I won't stay
12: overnight. I'll come back home because that's where I want to be at this stage of my life. The pop icon says he and his husband want to spend more time being parents now that their two sons are in school and it isn't so easy to take them on tour.
1: I want to be with my children. I want to be with my partner. It's just a sanctuary for me.
18: Don't have much money, but boy if I did, I'd
6: buy a big
13: house where we both could live. Before his goodbye tour kicked off in 2018, John told Anderson Cooper that he felt lucky to do what he does.
12: Nothing is like playing to another human being and getting the emotional feedback. The pandemic hiatus didn't stop John from playing 330 shows in 16 custom-made
1: glittering Gucci suits. Some countries are a little colder than others and you have to get them going, but that's all part and parcel of your craft. You never give in, you never say, oh, I can't be bothered.
13: The tour wrapped up in Stockholm, Sweden on Saturday and is believed to have grossed more than $900 million. You
1: know, I always wanted the audience to have the best time, and I want to have the best time.
3: I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind how I
6: put down in the world.
12: And though Elton John has announced his retirement before, his songwriting partner Bernie Toppin says this really is the
13: end of the road. But Elton John says he won't stop making music and he may even do a one-off show sometime in the future.
16: Don't you know i still
13: You're listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C.
12: And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California.
8: I'm executive producer of podcasts, Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: President Biden's in London today for talks focusing on the war in Ukraine and climate change. It's Monday, July 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, a major part of the President's trip is tomorrow's meeting with NATO allies where they'll discuss possible expansion.
27: I don't think there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine in.
0: Also this hour, a federal court has allowed a ban on gender-affirming care in Tennessee, plus some research suggesting it is possible to generate positive emotions even amid some strife.
27: Meditation practice brings you back to being aware in the moment. It can allow you to go with the flow, which is being just present with what's happening all around you.
0: Forkher says rain today, highs in the 70s. It's 8.01.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman.
0: President Biden met British Prime Minister Rishi
3: Sunak in London today. Their countries are the top donors of military aid to Ukraine. But appears Lauren Freya reports from London, Biden and Sunak have at least two disagreements.
20: U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak opposes the use of cluster bombs, which Washington is giving to Ukraine. Those are weapons engineered to scatter sub-munitions over a wide area. The U.K. is a signatory to a convention that prohibits them. The U.S. is not. The other sticking point is the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. Both the U.S. and the U.K. support that. But they differ over how fast to do it. President Biden has said Kyiv is not yet ready because of the war. Prime Minister Sunak's government has called for it to be fast-tracked. This is Biden and Sunak's sixth meeting, and they're both heading to a NATO summit in Lithuania next. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. Another issue Biden will focus on at
3: the summit is helping Sweden gain admission to NATO, too. Turkey has been blocking Sweden's path. Turkey has demanded that Sweden do more to crack down on Kurdish militants. Turkey considers them terrorists. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says it is not clear how quickly Sweden can join NATO.
25: I can't characterize
16: how close, how far. All I can say is that we believe that Sweden should be admitted to NATO as soon as possible. We believe that there should be a pathway to do so. And we will now see how that will unfold As we head into Vilnius, um, whether it happens at Vilnius or happens in the period that follows, that remains to be determined.
3: Turkey's president said today that he now thinks Turkey should be admitted to the European Union before Sweden can join NATO. Heavy rains are moving through much of New England this morning where flood watches and warnings are in effect. Flooding is blamed for at least one death in New York's lower Hudson Valley. NPR's Marie Andrusovich reports.
4: New York Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency for Orange and Ontario counties, describing the flooding as a very dangerous situation. Some parts of the state saw up to eight inches of rain. In New York's Hudson Valley, a woman drowned while trying to leave her home. Here's Orange County Executive Stephen Newhouse.
17: There's some major flash flood, major washouts were all around where her houses. So I could definitely see where she was trying to get out to uh, to safety, but uh, did not make it, got swept away, and uh, unfortunately did not make it.
4: The National Weather Service says heavy rainfall is now impacting New England, which could lead to flooding not seen in the area since Irene. Marie Andrusovich, NPR News.
3: Meanwhile, excessive heat warnings are in effect in large swaths of the south today from Southern California to Florida. Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas are being warned, and the central plains are also being cautioned. Heat indices there could soar to 110 degrees. It's NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. State transportation officials are reminding drivers to add extra time to deal with the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the smooth going during the first few days of the closure... Maybe over.
8: Last week was an extremely light traffic week. It was the holiday week, a lot of people were on vacation, uh, impacts were pretty minor. We expect that to really increase over the next few weeks as those holiday travelers come back.
0: The route between East Boston and downtown will be closed through the end of August. A lot of drivers are using the Ted Williams Tunnel. Instead, right now it's about 15 minutes from the Logan Airport exit 293. Gulliver says this closure won't only affect people heading to Boston from the North Shore.
8: That's because when traffic gets congested approaching Sumner Tunnel in that, in that direction it's a domino effect. It starts spreading outward, so it will not be surprising to see congestion on uh, areas of the Mass Pike or areas of 93 or the Southeast Expressway or other routes into the city.
0: To help commuters, the T's Blue Line and the East Boston Ferry are both free. There are also discounts on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. You can get details on the closure on the front page of WBUR.org. The rainstorms moving through New England this morning are having an effect on flights flights. At Logan Airport. The website Flight Aware reports that nearly 60 flights in and out of Boston have been canceled today. Another 80 flights are delayed. Most of the affected flights are on JetBlue and Cape Air. The search and rescue team Massachusetts Task Force One is heading to Vermont today to help with possible flooding there. The Boston Police Department is among dozens of departments considering leaving the state's civil service hiring system. Boston police officials tell the Boston Globe that they're evaluating whether to leave. The system is used by several state agencies for entry-level hiring and promotions. More than three dozen police departments have left the civil service system in the past decade. The main criticism is that the system largely uses a standardized test and limits police departments' availability to hire. State lawmakers say that the state will reactivate a committee to study the social service, the Civil Service system. A proposed bill in Massachusetts aims to reduce light pollution to protect wildlife and encourage stargazing. Excess light and blue light in particular is known to interfere with bird migration, insects, and it affects human health. The bill would require state and municipal-funded projects to follow so-called dark sky practices. That includes using outdoor lights with warmer hues and less blue, Kelly Beattie is with the group Dark Sky Massachusetts, which helped write the proposed law.
27: It doesn't require retrofit. It, it only says if you're already going to replace these lights, or if you're already going to install these lights, then these will apply.
0: A state legislative committee will review the bill later this month. The time is seven minutes past eight. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on
29: Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, city space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll
0: help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. In sports, Red Sox beat the Oakland A's 4-3 to at Fenway Park yesterday. The Sox' next game isn't until Friday because of baseball's All-Star break. And our weather forecast, rain and thunderstorms today. A flood watch posted for parts of central and western Massachusetts. Temperatures in the 70s today. Tonight, more rain. Lows going down into the 60s, and for tomorrow, showers in the morning, partly sunny in the afternoon, highs in the 80s. Looks like sunshine on Wednesday, with temperatures up around 90 degrees. It is 68 degrees in Boston.
11: WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. In a few minutes,
12: a federal judge has upheld Tennessee's ban on gender-affirming care. But we're going to start this hour
13: by getting a view on the NATO summit from Ukraine. The prospect of Ukraine joining the alliance actually first came up in 2008. 15 years later, it's still under discussion. Here to tell us more, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie in Kiev, Ukraine.
12: Greg, if Ukraine can't get membership at this NATO summit, you heard President Biden say that it's premature maybe for even a vote to happen. So what does it hope it can get?
5: Well, the next best option from Ukraine's perspective would be a, a clear timetable toward membership. Uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky said in an interview that aired over the weekend that Ukraine should get clear security guarantees, which President Biden seems to agree with, although we don't know exactly what those are. And, and many Ukrainians just feel they've been in limbo since the possibility of joining NATO was first broached back in 2008. Ukraine wants the question resolved sooner rather than later. They say this fuzzy middle ground has encouraged Russian leader Vladimir Putin to invade, he knew it would be too late to act if he if he waited until Ukraine actually joined NATO. And, and lastly, I just note that President George W. Bush, who raised the idea of Ukraine and NATO, faced some pushback from Europe. And now some European countries, particularly Eastern European countries, support Ukraine and NATO while President Biden is urging caution and saying this will take time.
12: And Zelensky visited a few NATO countries uh, recently including Turkey, and then he returned home with several prominent Ukrainian military commanders. Who are, who are they?
5: Yeah, this was a real surprise. These five military commanders were key figures last year in the Azovstal steel plant in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. Uh, you, may, you may recall that they held out for more than two months before they finally surrendered to Russia. And the Russians then sent them to Turkey in September, and part of the deal was that they were supposed to remain in Turkey until the end of the war. But Turkey's President Erdogan handed the five commanders over to Zelensky during his visit Saturday. Russia is very angry about this, saying Turkey just reneged on the deal. Meanwhile, this was a real gift to Zelensky in Ukraine. The five commanders got a hero's welcome in Ukraine, and they say they will soon return to the fight.
12: Now, Zelensky also made a highly symbolic visit to Snake Island off Ukraine's coast. Why was he even there?
5: Zelensky took this very bold trip in a small inflatable boat to Snake Island, which is in the Black Sea, about 20 miles off Ukraine's southwest coast. And I say bold because Russia's Navy controls the Black Sea. Ukraine has no warships, no real naval presence to speak of, no clear way they could have protected him. And you may remember, this is the island where a Russian warship arrived at the beginning of the war and told the small Ukrainian force there to surrender. One Ukrainian responded with a memorable burst of profanity which has now been memorialized on billboards, t-shirts, and coffee mugs all over Ukraine. The island is now back in Ukrainian control and while he was on the island, Zelensky laid flowers, took a selfie, and said this showed Ukraine would reclaim all the territory. And I'll just note finally, that, that Russian ships keep their distance to avoid getting hit by the Ukrainian forces on the mainland. Still, it was a pretty dicey trip, even for Zelensky, who periodically visits the frontline areas.
12: NPR's Greg Myrie is in Kyiv, Ukraine. Thanks for the reporting, Greg.
5: Sure thing, eh? <music>
13: Back here in the US, more extreme heat is expected this week in the south and southwest. We're talking temperatures well above 100 degrees for several days in some areas. We're going to turn now to journalist Jeff Goodell, who has been covering climate change for decades, and he says these temperatures are both predictable and surprising. His latest book is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, and he's with us now from Austin, Texas. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. So I understand predictable, because scientists have been warning about climate change for decades now. But why do you say it's surprising?
14: Well, what's surprising is the uh, extremity of of the temperatures that we're seeing and the places where they're showing up. Obviously, places like Phoenix, which are hot this week, have been hot for a long time. But, you know, think back about the um, heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest in 2021, where we had temperatures of 120 degrees or so in Washington and British Columbia. And, you know, nobody predicted that kind of thing. That was... You know, as likely as sort of snow in the Sahara. And so we're seeing these um, extreme temperatures pop up in places that we didn't expect, lasting longer and getting hotter than even the most sort of sophisticated climate scientists thought about a decade or so ago.
13: can Can you say a bit more about what we might expect in years to come in terms of extreme heat?
14: That is a big an important question, and that there's no simple answer to that, but we know that as we continue to burn fossil fuels, our planet is getting hotter. And as it gets hotter, it changes the dynamics of the atmosphere, which can lead to these kinds of extreme events. And um, heat waves are the clearest manifestation of that. And one of the questions I explored in my book is I talked to climate scientists about like, how hot can it get? You know, I live in Austin, Texas, and it was 115 degrees here just last week for, for a week. It was, and it was really brutal. And, you know, I asked, scientists, can it get to be 120, 125? And, you know, they can't give a clear answer because we don't know. We're living in a new climate, and the rules are different, and we don't know where that exactly is going to take us.
13: And, and so to, to that end, are we taking extreme heat seriously enough? And I'm not talking about, you know, climate scientists here. I'm talking about uh, all of us, the rest of us. I'm talking about, you know, people who are just trying to go about their day as also, also officials and public health officials and people who, you know, help
14: us stay safe. No, we're not taking uh, heat seriously enough, and that includes me, you know, I've been writing for climate change for 20 years, and seven or eight years ago, I I almost died of heat stroke on a uh, climb up, up a mountain, mm-hmm. and I had no idea what was happening to me, I had no idea of the risks of, of heat to our bodies, and what it does to our bodies, and how Heat is like a lightning bolt. It can kill you very quickly if in the wrong kinds of situations. And you know, certain people are more vulnerable than other people. If you have uh, heart conditions, if you have hypertension, if you're on certain medications, you're much more vulnerable to heat than other people are.
13: And you also talk about in your book about how it's not just the immediate health risks which are considerable, but what other dangers to crops and livestock and this food supply. So, you know, very comprehensive reporting in your book. That's Jeff Goodell. His latest book is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. It comes out tomorrow. Jeff Goodell, thanks so much for joining us.
14: Thank you for having me.
12: Transgender youth in Tennessee can no longer access gender-affirming care.
13: A U.S. appeals court allowed a ban to take effect on surgical and non-surgical care that helps people transition toward their self-identified gender. The ruling, which came over the weekend, overturned a lower court decision to suspend the bill, which was signed into law in March. Joining us now is
12: Mariana Bacchiao of member station WPLN. So first off, what's the significance of this ruling?
7: this ruling could bring this issue closer to the Supreme Court. It's the first time a federal court has allowed a ban on gender-affirming care to take effect. Other states like Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Kentucky, and Florida have passed similar laws banning trans kids from accessing care like hormone therapy and puberty blockers. Like Tennessee, federal judges in these states temporarily block the bans while families and advocacy groups challenged them in court. But Tennessee's attorney general appealed to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which sided with him. The ban went into effect immediately.
12: And how did that court explain its opinion?
7: It was a two to one decision. The court's opinion, written by Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton, cites the Dobbs decision, which ended the federal right to abortion. The court's majority argues that both issues should be left up to the states. The opinion said the court saw no proof that gender-affirming care is, quote, "...deeply rooted in our history and traditions." The court also concluded that the law likely does not discriminate on the basis of sex because of another Dobbs precedent, which posits that it's not discrimination if the medical procedure only applies to one sex. There was one dissenting opinion. Judge Helene White wrote that the law likely does discriminate based on sex. She points out that the law does make some exceptions. It allows hormone therapy for cisgender and intersex kids, just not for transgender kids.
12: Okay. Now tell us uh, about the plaintiffs.
7: I spoke with LW. She's a 15-year-old transgender girl and the named plaintiff in this lawsuit. We're just using her initials because she's afraid of being targeted. She started taking estrogen in the fall after being on puberty blockers. She says it really helped her mental health. I was definitely very depressed before I went on
26: estrogen, especially before puberty blockers because I really just like wasn't myself and it was just difficult to care about everything around me.
7: Her parents, Brian and Samantha Williams, say they've also seen a huge change in her. They say she wasn't really engaging with her peers or family before. Or even with us, like she wouldn't make eye contact. She
16: wouldn't hug you.
26: She wouldn't hug you. You know, we had no idea why that was until after.
7: And then now she's very affectionate with us. A lot of parents of trans kids that I've spoken with echoed that sentiment.
12: So what's in the short term for this law and also this family?
7: This ruling is temporary. The courts have until the end of September to decide whether the law will stay in effect while the lawsuit continues. But still, the Williams family is devastated. In the meantime, they're having to look to other states to get care. Here's Elle's mom again. The two states where we were looking to go for care if the
26: injunction wasn't granted now have bills of their own, which means we'd have to go even further.
7: The family is working to find ways for Elle to continue taking estrogen. Without this care, she says she's not able to enjoy life.
12: That's Mariana Bacchiao of member station WPLN. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with us. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll talk about some of the factors behind what's been driving the recent increase in unemployment among black workers in the U.S. It's 20 minutes past eight.
27: I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate
21: it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love.
20: Just go to WBUR.org.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bionova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. Bionova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. And schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine with Brooklyn 9 and the Good Place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at SailGraceBailey.com. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August, so if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't
9: drive.
8: The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to without a doubt be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted blue line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service.
21: For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit wbur.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates.
0: In our forecast, rain, thunderstorms. Today, a flood watch posted for parts of central and western Massachusetts. Temperatures in the 70s. More rain tonight with lows in the 60s. Tomorrow, some showers in the morning, but partly sunny. Tomorrow afternoon, highs in the 80s. It is 68 degrees in Boston.
22: Support for NPR
0: comes from this
22: station and from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. From EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Merative. Learn more at dynamedx.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
12: I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm a. martinez A tragedy in China, a man there attacked a kindergarten, killing a teacher, two parents, and three children. Police say the attacker is in custody, but they haven't released a motive yet for the killings. Here's NPR's Emily Fang.
24: Here's what we know so far. About mid-morning in the southern Chinese city of Lianjiang, a 25-year-old man walked into a kindergarten and started stabbing anyone he could see, according to a local news report. <laughs> This video of the kindergarten where the attack happened shows two bodies. That of an adult and a child lying near the school entrance. Social media footage shows the man being pushed into a waiting police car. Police so far have not said why the man targeted children or this particular kindergarten. Authorities have started censoring posts and some articles on the attack within hours. Such incidents like these are sensitive news in China. And that's because as horrific as the attacks are, they are not unusual. The list is long, but here are a few of them. In 2010, a man killed 9 people in a kindergarten in northwestern China. Seven years later, another man wounded 11 children in another kindergarten. Over the last five years, there have been four more deadly attacks on kindergartens and primary schools, mostly perpetuated by people police say had recently experienced huge personal setbacks and, in at least one case, wanted to, quote, take revenge on society. The weapon of choice in nearly all these cases has been a knife because China, like all East Asian countries, strictly bans private gun use or ownership. Emily Fang, and Pierre News, Taipei.
13: We all look forward to time off, and research shows taking vacation is good for our health. Still, spending all that time together with family and friends in close quarters can bring anxious moments, too. New research shows a simple 5-10 to minute meditation practice can help when things get stressful. As part of NPR's Summer Living Better series, Alison Aubrey tells us what she found out about how to stay positive and cultivate good memories even amid everyday annoyances.
28: When we dream about summer vacation, we imagine the good stuff. Warm days, cool breezes, lots of laughter and fun. We tend to forget that things don't always go according to plan, especially when lots of people, family or friends, gather together.
27: Vacations and holidays are super challenging. I just came off one, so I know firsthand.
28: (laughs) That's Dr. Michael Irwin, director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. I told him about my recent week off. We had rain for five straight days. My husband got strep throat and we had a trip to the ER for a health scare with my dad. Now, fortunately, everything's okay, but it was not how I had imagined the week and it left me feeling a bit jangly.
27: I've learned this firsthand. I come into my situations with my family and the mindfulness has helped incredibly because I have expectations and then it's like, oh, oh, well, this is what's happening.
28: Whether it's tension over where to go, what to do, who's cooking, personalities and agendas can collide to create strife. And Dr. Irwin says that's where a toolkit of meditation practices can help you keep your calm and prevent dust-ups.
27: A meditation practice brings you back to being aware in the moment. And instead of responding in a reactive way, it can allow you to go with the flow, which is being just present with what's happening all around you.
28: The easiest way to meditate is to just focus in on your breath. As you zero in on inhales and exhales, that ticker tape of worries and rumination running through your mind can fade away.
27: That's an opportunity for you to be present in that moment. And just coming back to that breath, that's, that's the simplest meditation.
28: There's lots of ways to meditate, and a new study points to the benefit of one practice called loving-kindness meditation. Study author Amanda Lathan, a PhD candidate at the University of St. Andrews, is a seasoned meditation teacher.
30: You inwardly repeat the following phrase, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be filled with loving-kindness and peace.
28: It may seem a little woo-woo at first, but it's a simple way to start your day with positive energy.
30: You then move on to extend compassion outward to different people. Think of someone you don't actually know, but whose face you could recognize. So maybe someone from your local store.
28: The idea is to send good energy and compassion to people you love, people you hardly know, and people you struggle with. May you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be filled with loving kindness One of the biggest roadblocks to meditation is that it's really difficult to just sit still and quiet your mind. So having this phrase to repeat gives you something to think about.
30: And it gives you something to visualize. So it actually keeps you quite occupied.
28: And Lathan says this external focus evoking other people can help reduce what's called self-referential processing, which is a fancy way of saying you can shift your mindset away from it's all about me.
30: So reducing this self-referential processing could actually have a positive influence on our emotions and the way that we generate memories.
28: Her study did find that people who did this meditation daily for about a month were more likely to recall positive memories.
30: It could be that with the loving kindness meditation, maybe memories that were previously perceived as negative memories or even a neutral memory might have been shifted into a positive valence, into a positive memory
28: which makes me think back to my week off. Despite the weather and sickness, we did have some really nice dinners, lots of laughs and walks on the beach. And Lathan's study suggests with his daily meditation, I may be more likely to remember the good stuff and leave the bad bits behind. Alison Aubrey, NPR News.
22: Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
13: Coming up tomorrow on Morning Edition, a New York marijuana company is targeting its products to seniors. A lot of people see the benefits, but there are things users of a certain age should be cautious about. You can listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio.
0: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are just ahead. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the popularity of Major League Soccer in the United States. It's 8.30.
25: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is meeting with King Charles at Windsor Castle at this hour after arriving in London yesterday. The president is visiting Britain ahead of this week's NATO summit in Lithuania. Earlier today, Biden was greeted by British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at 10 Downing Street.
19: It's great to have you there, back in Downing Street. I think you've been here a few times before, I know, but your first time is president. So we're
12: very privileged and fortunate to have you here. Thanks for coming.
25: The war in Ukraine and NATO expansion are expected to dominate the summit in Vilnius. Finland joined NATO in April. Sweden's bid is still pending. The two countries sought membership in the alliance after Russia invaded Ukraine. In Southern California, more than a dozen homes were destroyed over the weekend when a hillside gave way in a community south of Los Angeles. Nobody was injured. Firefighters were called to Rolling Hills Estates after a report of a major water leak and ordered residents there to evacuate. Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn got a look at the damage.
13: To think uh, that these homes were intact you know, yesterday afternoon and today you can
3: hear The creaking, the cracking, the crumbling, and uh, they're going to fall.
25: Residents reported hearing popping and cracking sounds for a couple of days before the hillside gave way. This is NPR News. The National Weather Service says extreme heat will be an issue this week in areas of Southern California, as well as Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and much of South Texas. Heat indexes topping triple digits are expected this afternoon in South Florida. Across much of New England, flooding from heavy rains is possible today. Flood watches and warnings are in effect, with some areas forecast to receive one to two inches of rain before the end of the day. Police in southeast China say a man with a knife killed six people today at a school. NPR's Emily Fang says the attack at a kindergarten left children and adults dead.
24: Police have already apprehended the 25 year old man they say is suspected of breaking into a kindergarten in Guangdong province, then attacking people with a knife. The victims include one teacher, two parents, and three students. There's no details yet on motive, and local Chinese media reports and social media posts about the stabbing have already been censored. Like all East Asian countries, China strictly outlaws private gun ownership and gun use, so fatal attacks like this one almost always involve stabbing. Kindergarten attacks have become more common as well. A knife attack on a Jiangxi province kindergarten a year ago left three dead, and in 2020, a knife attack left 39 people injured at another primary school.
0: Emily Fang, and Pierre News, Taipei.
25: Dow futures are up 21 points ahead of the open on Wall Street. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington.
0: This is ninety. This is ninety point nine WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A public-private conservation partnership in western Massachusetts is working to include indigenous perspectives. The group's goal is to protect forests and encourage sustainable development. WBUR's Palomora reports that the group recently elected an indigenous representative to its board. Stockbridge
21: Munsee Band of Mohicans, Abenaki, Pokanoket. Nipmuc peoples. Many only know indigenous communities in Western Massachusetts from history books, but there are also contemporary neighbors. That's one of the messages educator Rhonda Anderson wants to bring as a new board member at the Woodlands Partnership of Northwest Massachusetts. She's a co-director of the Okateo Cultural Center in Nashville.
31: There needs to be a greater awareness of allowing access to these communities that have been dispossessed of their land, their traditional medicines, their traditional foods, their traditional ceremonial places.
21: She says she also wants accurate historical signs along the Route 2 corridor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Muda.
0: A Brockton-based nonprofit is starting to provide medication abortions at all seven of its southeastern Massachusetts locations. Leaders with health imperatives say the services were made possible because of a $700,000 grant from the state. The Cape Cod Times reports medication abortions were not previously available on the Cape and Islands, and patients still need to travel elsewhere for surgical abortion procedures. Dozens of beaches across Massachusetts remain closed this morning because of high levels of bacteria in the water. The State Department of Public Health says 70 beaches statewide were closed over the weekend. Officials recorded high levels of E. coli in the water, which can make swimmers sick. The closures include Constitution Beach in East Boston, West End Beach in Duxbury, and Black Rock Beach in Nahant. The time is 8.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital. Thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. In sports, Red Sox ended the first half of their season with a five-game winning streak. They beat the Oakland A's 4-3 to at Fenway yesterday. The Sox are off until Friday for the All-Star break. In our forecast, clouds, rain, thunderstorms today. A flood watch posted for parts of central and western Massachusetts in the 70s today. Tonight, more rain lows in the 60s and tomorrow lingering showers in the morning but partly sunny in the afternoon highs will be in the 80s tomorrow for Wednesday sunny and highs near 90 degrees it is 68 degrees in Boston
22: support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown and Silent Witness available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com slash NPR NPR from indeed designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract interview and hire candidates all from one place more at indeed.com npr and from the listeners who support this npr station
13: it's morning edition from npr news i'm michelle martin in washington dc and i'm A. martinez in culver city california
12: President Biden is in Europe this week with a mission to shore up America's ties and discuss potentially expanding NATO membership at a two-day leaders summit in Lithuania.
13: But he begins his trip this morning in the United Kingdom, meeting British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and talking climate change with King Charles at Windsor Castle.
12: NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid joins us now from London. The uh, NATO summit is really the focus of this trip to Europe. What will be the top priority?
4: Well, Ukraine is going to be the top priority. Uh, Biden has staked a lot of his personal reputation on uniting NATO in the face of Russian aggression. But one big test for this idea of NATO unity when this summit does get underway tomorrow in Lithuania will be around this question of Ukraine's membership into the club. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has called on Biden to invite Ukraine into NATO now, but Biden has resisted that push. Uh, The president spoke with CNN's Fareed Zakaria before he left for this trip to Europe. AND BIDEN FLATLY SAID UKRAINE IS NOT READY FOR NATO MEMBERSHIP.
27: HOLDING NATO TOGETHER IS REALLY CRITICAL. I DON'T THINK THERE IS UNANIMITY IN NATO ABOUT WHETHER OR NOT TO BRING UKRAINE INTO THE NATO FAMILY NOW, AT THIS MOMENT, IN THE MIDDLE OF A WAR.
4: And that's because bringing Ukraine in now would require other NATO countries to join that war effort. You know, so Biden says it would be premature to call for a vote now when uh, Ukraine, though, I will say, (laughs) would like to see at least a clear path to membership uh, when the leaders get together this week.
12: Yeah, so then what would uh, even be the conditions for Ukraine to join? I mean, has the White House spelled that out?
4: No, and the White House has said it will uphold NATO's open-door policy, which means, in theory, Ukraine could join the club one day, but it's not articulated a timeline. Uh, Biden told CNN he thinks they have to lay out a, quote, rational path for Ukraine to get into NATO. And he said that'll require some democratic reform. So, you know, it'll take some time to get into NATO. Uh, But Biden did tell CNN that in the meantime, if there is a ceasefire in this war, the U.S. will be ready to provide security guarantees to Ukraine, akin to what it does for Israel, providing weapons capacity for the country to defend itself, Of course, you know, that would require the approval of Congress. And there is the risk that this all could further anger the Kremlin.
12: Sure. Now, it's not just uh, Ukraine's membership that's raised questions about NATO unity. Uh, Tell us, uh, Asma, about what's going on with Sweden.
4: That's right. Um, You know, you probably recall after Russia invaded Ukraine, both Finland and Sweden applied to join NATO. It's now been over a year and Finland joined the group a few months ago. But Sweden's membership bid has been held up. And really, the main opposition is Turkey. Turkey feels that Sweden is not doing enough to crack down on groups that it views as terrorists. But really, experts tell me that this holdup is not just about Sweden. Turkey sees Sweden's membership as a moment of leverage, specifically around obtaining F-16 fighter jets from the United States. And on the flight over to Europe yesterday, Biden spoke with Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan about Sweden's membership and this issue of the F-16. The two leaders are also expected to talk more on the sidelines of the NATO. SUMMIT, BIDEN HAS SAID HE IS OPTIMISTIC SWEDEN WILL JOIN NATO, BUT IT'S STILL NOT CLEAR WHEN EXACTLY THAT MIGHT HAPPEN.
12: THAT'S NPR'S ASMA Hallid ON THE STREETS OF LONDON. ASMA, THANKS A LOT.
4: GOOD TALKING WITH YOU.
13: unemployment among black workers is rising. Nationally, unemployment remains at an historically low figure of about three and a half percent, but that figure jumps to six percent for black workers. That marks a second consecutive monthly increase in black unemployment. For a closer look at these numbers, we've called Kate Bond. She focuses on research about low-wage workers at the Urban Institute. Good morning. Thanks for joining us.
31: Thanks for having me, Michelle.
13: I mean, of course, I want to know what could be driving the rise in unemployment among black workers. But first, I just want to be sure that two months of increases is enough to identify a possible trend, is
31: it? this is the key point because I think it may not be. Um, When we look at the one month, the six month, the nine month, and the 12 month figures, those are not statistically significant in the data. So what this might suggest really is that we had some noise in the positive direction about three months ago and some noise in the negative direction the past two months, but it's still ultimately just noisy data. Hmm. I don't want to say that doesn't mean 6% isn't troubling, but it's still seems to be noise.
13: Well, okay, so that's helpful, but but what could be driving that? Let's assuming just for the sake of argument that this is something that we need to keep an eye on. What could be driving it?
31: Well, a key thing to keep in mind, um, in particular, you know, we know the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to try to address inflation, and when the Federal Reserve takes actions like that, it does tend to disproportionately impact workers who face more barriers to opportunity, who are more marginalized. And so that means, plainly put, that when the Federal Reserve keeps raising interest rates, that will disproportionately hurt Black workers. So I think that's really what we want to keep our eye on.
13: More broadly, has the post-pandemic jobs recovery been different
31: for Black workers than for other workers? It has been. um, So, you know, when you look at the unemployment, we want to keep an eye on that for those reasons about the Fed that I just talked. But we look at a lot of other data on what is happening with black workers in the labor market and this really remarkable recovery It is actually looking pretty good. Um, And so two data points I want to point out is that the employment rate of black workers is currently only a half percentage point below that of white workers. Um, So still lower than white workers, but that's actually a historic convergence. The employment rate of black workers and white workers is the closest that it's ever been. And then the second data point i want to bring up is their labor force participation rate Um, and so that is all workers who are both working and looking for work and that has always lagged for black workers historically it looked like it was converging prior to the pandemic in the pandemic, Black workers were hit much worse. They have much worse unemployment outcomes. They had a little bit of lagging in the initial recovery. But now, actually, labor force participation for Black workers is higher than that of white workers. It has swapped places that direction. And that is, like, that is really remarkable. I don't want to understate that, that the fact that labor force participation is higher for Black workers than white workers right now is really remarkable. So
13: interesting. So before we let you go, are Black workers in a better position now to whether what could be another downturn.
31: Well, it takes two things for it to be have good employment outcomes. It takes really good market forces. We certainly have those, but we also need institutional change to ensure that workers who have been historically excluded, like black workers, can share in the gains of the economy. And so we have those market forces right now, but we don't have those institutional changes yet. And so my fear is if we have a downturn, we'll basically reverse a lot of these recent gains. What we really need is policy change to ensure that black workers are on the same footing as white workers.
13: That is Kate Vaughn of the Urban Institute. Kate, thanks so much for sharing this uh, research with us. Great. Thank you so
31: much. Have a good day.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes, it's the Marketplace Morning Report, where we'll hear a story about lessons from the video game industry, which brings in more revenue than movies and music combined. In our weather forecast, rain and thunderstorms today. A flood watch posted for central and western Massachusetts. Temperatures around 70 degrees today. Tonight, more rain, lows in the 60s. And tomorrow, some showers in the morning, partly sunny. Tomorrow afternoon, highs in the 80s. It is 68 degrees in Boston. In business news, employers in Massachusetts remain pessimistic about the state of the economy. That's according to the Business Confidence Index released today by the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. Christopher Geerin is the organization's vice president, and he says the pessimistic attitude is affecting how business owners are planning for the near future. Perhaps
27: somebody was going to add a new wing onto their manufacturing plant, and maybe instead of doing it in the fall, maybe they're now looking at doing it sometime next year. So I think it's
6: not critical slowdown, but it's just enough hesitation to
5: kind of make employers maybe push out some projects that they had planned.
0: Garen says local business owners are citing the ability to find qualified workers as a major concern. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an
22: industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or hybrid,
0: bc.edu msae, and Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive, oceanstatejoblot.com.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And
13: I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. When Argentine soccer superstar Lionel Messi announced that he was taking his talents to Miami's floundering Major League Soccer team, American soccer fans once again hope this might be the sport's foothold to popularity in the U.S. The MLS has been gaining in popularity in recent years. Next week's All-Star Game in Washington is sold out, and soccer is one of the most popular youth sports in the country, but why does the professional game still seem to be falling short in the US. We've called Kevin James to talk about that. He's director of Vienna Youth Soccer, that's in Vienna, Virginia. For more on this, Kevin, good morning.
15: Good morning. Thanks for having me, Michelle.
13: So it seems like a lot of kids start out playing soccer in this country, but then they gravitate to other sports or quit. Why do you think that's happening?
15: So I think the it's common across all countries. The nice thing about the United States, depending on how you look at things, is we just have a very high volume of kids playing so you know the larger that number the simple reality is whether you look at the pro game or the college game there's only so many kids that can play at that level from a number perspective and there is opportunity to play any sport almost you know in the united states from an accessibility standpoint
13: mm. do you see a difference between the boys and girls in terms of the sports kind of i don't know reach i mean u.s women's soccer of course is phenomenal success story I was at the grocery store last night and I saw a bunch of little girls with rapino jerseys on which I thought was pretty amazing so what what do you think you think there's a gender difference there
15: yes of course there's going to be a little bit of a difference between gender depending on your location and time of year with the women's World Cup coming up I do think it it will spike which is great but it's a little bit it depends on the culture of where you live
13: hmm yeah it makes sense so do you think that the US League, is yet competitive with Europe? I mean, Europe still, you know, has the top players and the leagues and, you know, the funding and, you know, we, you know, even, you know, bring coaches over and and certainly a lot of players, you know, we're excited about the European players. I mean, obviously, we're excited about our homegrown stars. But still, I mean, do you think the US league is competitive with the European league yet, particularly on the men's side?
15: I think it depends on how you define competitive for the sake of today. You know, I look at it by the number of eyeballs that watch the games. And, you know, from from that standpoint, no, we're not. We just don't have the eyes on our games like, you know, the Premier League does. Messi may help that. I mean, we've seen that already with, you know, Miami's Instagram exploding. Um, and I would attribute a lot of that to international eyes now looking at Miami, not necessarily on... Um, you know, the nation internally looking at him, although some of that numbers will be from that. Um, but no, the TV rights deals that the Premier League has um, far exceed any of the TV rights deals that the MLS has.
13: So before we let you go, turning to the MLS game in, in Washington, DC, are you going? I am. All right, we'll send pictures, all right. Kevin James is the director of Vienna Youth Soccer. That's in Vienna, Virginia. Kevin, thank you so much.
15: Thank you so much for having me.
13: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C., and I'm May Martinez in Culver
12: City, California.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. On the show today, they'll have more on the report that Russian President Vladimir Putin met with the head of a mercenary group last month, days before that group staged an attempted coup. It's 10 minutes before 9. Many Americans with ADHD are scrambling for their
10: prescription medication due to a months-long shortage.
18: Adderall people. ADHD people. What are we doing? What are we doing? Because I just drove all over my town. Not a single person had my medication.
10: What's behind the demand for ADHD drugs? And how are people coping who can't get their medications? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We're funded by
21: you, our listeners, and by Mefa, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators,
0: and an informative podcast. More information at mefa.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following on WBUR this Monday morning. President Biden in London today to meet with Britain's Prime Minister and King Charles about Russia's war in Ukraine. Police in China are searching for a motive after 6 people were killed in a knife attack at a kindergarten this morning. And a flood watch is in place for much of New England and New York. Floods have disrupted travel and killed at least one person. Stay up to date on the news on All day, here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com.
0: In our forecast, rain, thunderstorms today, temperatures around 70.
6: Students who turned the video game they developed into economic development for a
21: community. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indeed, a streamlined hiring solution. Indeed helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Learn more at Indeed.com hire. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at Schwab.com slash why Schwab. I'm David Brancaccio. First,
6: UPS and its union, the Teamsters, last week ended negotiations with no deal. The union's contract expires July 31st, at which time 350,000 UPS workers are free to go on strike. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab reports.
26: The last time UPS workers went on strike was 1997. It lasted 15 days and cost $850 million. Jason Miller is a professor of supply chain management at Michigan State
16: pure chaos was the best it can be described and we didn't have this incredible amount of e-commerce packages
26: back then amazon mostly sold books and target and walmart didn't offer online shopping ups delivers about a third of the country's parcels miller says other carriers won't be able to absorb all the volume and nearly half of ups's deliveries is business to business shipments
16: wholesalers of professional and commercial equipment so like computers smartphones and things like that
26: it means production of some goods could slow there is a silver lining willie she is a professor of management at harvard
25: if this has to happen this is probably a good a time as any
26: americans haven't been buying as much stuff and summer is a low shipping season but she says it'll still be very disruptive i'm Kristen schwab for marketplace
6: Markets, Dow futures are up 29 points, a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down 10 points, less than a tenth percent. S&P futures are just sitting there.
21: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. And by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI.
6: Video games are bigger than movies and music combined. What can the games and the vast industry that surrounds them tell us about? Economics, business, careers, equity. We have a project at Marketplace called Skin in the Game. Here, online and streamable video, A full immersion virtual adventure, meeting people working to crack into the industry itself. Today, what if the energy of the streets deemed illegal became a sport? The rear ends of cars drift, with the front tires locked hard right or left. You can almost smell the rubber burning as the crowd cheers and dances. It's a video game that draws from what's called sideshow culture. Drivers showing off moves, a tradition, with roots in Oakland, California. What if sideshows were not demonized? Trevor Cardoza was part of a student team that created a video game drawing from these sideshows as part of Game Heads, a mentoring program in Oakland that teaches game development to high school kids and young adults. They call their game High Sidon, but in this virtual version, the cars doing donuts are not drifting in crosswalks designed for pedestrians. The game action plays out in a ring with barriers to keep the virtual crowd safe. In real life, these daredevil displays have killed people and politicians have tried to crack down. The student game developers wondered what it might be like if these car stunts were safer and formalized
16: into a sport. But if they were not shown in such a bad light, they were originally meant to be car shows, essentially, and just hyphen movements, but now it seems like it's a response to gentrification and the change of culture
14: you heard the
16: other word there hyphy h-y-p-h-y
6: it's a word out of oakland meaning energetic hyped up hyphy it's a music style and a dance style so the game head students came up with the car game and a separate
29: dance game i worked on Interpreting the mechanics behind the things that they're creating and trying to find ways that their passion for a culture can be communicated visually.
6: Anaya Crouch worked on the High Siden project. Crouch is from Southern California and didn't grow up in contact with sideshow cars or high fee dances, so she did her fieldwork,
29: doing research and then kind of like picking apart things and kind of putting things back together in a way that is more genuine to their experience.
6: There's a creative tension here, thinking about what the rules of these activities would be if it became a formal sport that offered prizes and attracted sponsors. But... We didn't want to put weird generalizations and weird, like, strict rules on it because, in the sense, sideshows are meant to be freestyle. That's the whole point of hyphy movement. Editions of High Sidon and High Sidon Hyphy Edition are available for PCs, and the dance one is available on mobile tech giant Google heard about these games and granted the developers $65,000 to be shared with this group and students who did another title called Camino that explored the Cuban slave trade. The founder of Game Heads, Damon Packwood, was blown away by how the students used a lot of that money. So what they did is they went out into the black community and found talent. They found sound designers. They found people that can do music. They found videographers. And so they were actually investing money back into the black community. I was amazed when I saw it. I didn't tell him to do this. Trevor went on from Game Heads, graduated from college and got a job gamifying advanced medical devices. But this spring, a plot twist with Silicon Valley startups shaken by the skidding stock market and bank failures, Trevor got laid off. It's a pattern GameHeads mentors have experienced themselves. Paul Rabicki is a game design pro who adds resilience to his teaching. We talk about, you know, sort of that ebb and
16: flow, but, okay, that project fell apart. How do you go about sort of pick yourself up, dust yourself
14: yeah, off, and, yeah. and
16: continue when
14: that's really,
16: really
6: hard? Trevor's now buffing up his resume as he looks for something else. Fellow GameHeads alum, Anaya is focused on animation. And with her UC Berkeley degree now in hand, she's lining up graduate study. All these tech jobs in Silicon Valley, yet many young people growing up in that same region don't feel welcome. I'll explore how that GameHeads program addresses the issue with a curriculum that welcomes, as they put it, anything cool. Explore how they do it by checking out our Skin in the Game video. The first one is a click away on YouTube now. Marketplace APM is the way. And for future reporting here, I'm interested in your personal story about learning about money, business, economics from video games. You can email me at morningreport at marketplace.org with those stories. I'm David Brancaccio with The Morning Report from APM, American Public Media.
21: I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.